This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. To limit yourself to saying, well, we're going to produce as many masks as possible in our own country, we're going to produce as many ventilators as possible in our own country, is a vision of the future that is far more limited than the lives we've learned to lead. And I think is insufficient for a world that has more resources to do more good and is more connected than any time ever. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. These are difficult times, and so I want to open this podcast with an optimistic thought, an optimistic thought that I put later on to my guest, who I think is a little bit skeptical of it, but bear me out for now. In the middle of this pandemic, it's very hard to know how we're doing. It's very easy to focus on all of the stories of failure, on the miserable failure of Donald Trump, on the people at the individual level who are not living up to the moral duty of ensuring social distancing at the moment. But I wonder whether looking back at this moment, we might not perceive it despite all of the suffering and all of the failures we are witnessing as one of the more optimistic moments in human history, as one of the bigger achievements of human history. Around the world, the impact of social distancing is starting to be felt in the coronavirus statistics. The number of cases of hospitalizations and many cases of deaths is starting to stagnate or go down. If we manage to find good treatments, if we manage to keep the number of new cases down through quarantines and contact tracing over the next months, that is a big if. But if we manage to do that, humanity might collectively manage to bring the number of deaths from this virus down very significantly from what it would otherwise be. I'm not confident that this is going to be the outcome. We might well be remembering this moment as one of the great failures of humanity. But it's something worth playing for. It is a goal worth trying to achieve, and I don't think that it is entirely outside of a realm of possibility. But now I'm really honored to have David Miliband on the podcast for the second time. David held a number of important roles in the British government, including as foreign secretary from 2007 to 2010. He is now the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee in New York. And we had a really great conversation about the world after Corona, trying to think through what the long-term impact of this moment of this crisis will be. But also, perhaps more importantly, a very sobering conversation about just how hard many of the poorer countries around the world will find it to beat back this pandemic and what we can all do to help them do so. Welcome back to the podcast, David. Thanks, Yasha. It's good to be with you in these truly surreal circumstances. 
It really is surreal. We were talking a few weeks ago and you were saying that this is the most extraordinary political crisis of your lifetime. Now, you know, you've lived through 9-11 and a lot of important historical events. I share the sentiment, but I have trouble describing what it is about this moment. I can tell you exactly. The biggest event, not of my lifetime, but of the memories of people I've talked to is obviously the Second World War. But I was brought up in a country where you were taught that Attlee could, the deputy prime minister, could still check the cricket scores in the mornings as the war went on. And so you describe it as the most extraordinary political time. I think what makes this surreal is that it's not just that politics is frozen, but that life is frozen, that it's a social, economic, political, global induced coma. And that it surely explains why this is so extraordinary. That seems exactly right to me, that even though the suffering and the death toll in the world wars was far greater than so far we have suffered from this pandemic, the disruption to the daily lives of people has never been as profound and as global as it has now. I mean, at this point, it is probably uh, over half of humanity that has had their lives profoundly altered in the course of a few weeks. And that likely wasn't true to quite the same extent, even at the height of World War II. I think that's exactly right. But there are two aspects to it. One is disruption, which is exactly the right word you've used. Every aspect of our lives has been disrupted. But on the other hand, there's suddenly shared experience. I mean, I do calls with our teams in fragile states around the world. And of course, we're talking about the fact that South Sudan only has four ventilators. But we're also talking about the fact that the staff I'm speaking to are trying to homeschool their kids in Juba. So there is shared experience of this, as well as very unequal disruption and very unequal vulnerability. So, you know, we've been talking about these wars, and they clearly were the last turning point in human history on that kind of scale. And obviously, a lot of politicians have been reaching for the metaphor of war, that we're at war with the coronavirus. I've been thinking about this a little bit recently, because I think that that metaphor is wrong-headed in a couple of ways. I mean, we're not going to win the fight against corona by shooting at it. We can't negotiate a ceasefire uh, with a virus because it's not an intentional agent. So there's all kinds of disanalogies. But I was thinking of the famous Clausewitz lines about the fog of war. Um, he said, war is the realm of uncertainty. Three quarters of the factors on which action in war is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for a skilled intelligent to sense ours to the truth. And it strikes me that we're a kind of fog of pandemic. You know, I have trouble figuring out whether we're succeeding or miserably failing. I mean, is this a proof that all of our governance systems are terribly malfunctioning? Or might we actually reduce the death toll from this virus to such an extent that it's one of the great accomplishments in human history? How do we start thinking about this? Well, I think there is a lot of fog. That's undoubtedly true. But I agree with you. It's not the fog of war. I don't think that is a helpful metaphor, even on a podcast called The Good Fight, for the reasons that you say. I think that the nature of the fog, though, has a number of distinctive elements. One, few of us really understand mathematics and exponential numbers. I heard Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner, say that even he found it difficult to get his brain around the idea of what it meant that a 100 deaths on day one of a month could be uh, consistent with 30,000 deaths at the end of the month on certain rates of growth of 
the disease. So that's one aspect to it. Secondly, the fog comes from uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty about how to deal with a virus that combines both mass infectiousness, easy infectiousness, and quite a virulent character, it seems, for people, I'm afraid, of my age and above. If you're over 50 or 60, it becomes quite dangerous. So that's the second element of it. Thirdly, I do think the fact that this virus plays with not just our health systems, it's not just a health challenge, it's a health economic political challenge, also explains some of the flailing that's going on. But there is, of course, another aspect to this, which is that the dominant politics of the last five years, the politics of anger over the politics of answers, has absolutely nothing to say about community transmission, absolutely nothing to say about social distancing, tries to find things to say about why we should concentrate on just blaming the Chinese. And that is part of the disturbance, if you like, that is going on in all of our minds. So I suppose I have an even more basic confusion than that, which is that I could look at some of the events of the last three or four weeks and enumerate failings that should make humanity ashamed of itself for the next hundred years, whether it's Donald Trump's terrible mismanagement of the crisis, whether it is people, you know, insisting on going out to get coffee or hang out with friends when uh, that might be killing their neighbors or their own relatives. It's easy to find real examples of infamy at the moment. But at the same time, I wonder whether people might look back at this moment and say it's kind of incredible and inspiring that so many countries so quickly altered the way they live in a fundamental way in order to radically reduce the number of people who are going to die from this disease. And, and I'm having real trouble sort of thinking through what that first draft of history should be. Is this a moment of failure or collective success? And I think part of the answer to that is we don't know to what extent we will in fact succeed in keeping the number of deaths from this virus down. No, but I have a different perspective to you on this, Yasha, which is that what we do know and can say with, I think, a quite a high degree of confidence is that the final scorecard will show that some countries have done better than others. And that's obviously complicated by the fiddling of the statistics that is a fearful part of some of this in some places. But I think you can make a plausible claim, I could make a plausible claim, that history will spend more chapters discussing the variation in performance than it will discussing the aggregate number of lives that were lost or saved. And it's in the differential performance that I think we're going to see the greatest debates. And that certainly is going to have the biggest impact on the political events of the next 10 or 20 years. If the narrative coming out of this, rightly or wrongly, becomes that autocratic regimes are very good at dealing with this kind of threat, and democracies mean that many citizens needlessly die, that would further the rise of uh, authoritarian powers and populists around the world. If, on the other hand, this uh, demonstrates, as you were alluding to earlier, that a lot of the rising politics of the last five years doesn't have anything to say about the actual dangers faced by a lot of people around the world, then those forces might be significantly weakened. Do you think it's obvious what the scorecard is going to be on that front? Is this empowering authoritarians and populists around the world, or is this going to lead to a democratic renaissance? No, I think it's contested. Surely that's the case. And there are two axes that you've raised. One is autocrats versus democrats, autocratic regimes versus more uh, democratic regimes. The second is populists versus the rest. Those are different axes of contest. I would add to that an axis of contest over 
equality and inequality? To what extent does the lack of universal health care become part of the story, that the holes in the safety net, both within Western countries and beyond it? And I think there's obviously also an axis of contest over privacy and social trust. But in respect of the dilemma or the challenge that you raise at the beginning of the question, I think it's rather more pointed than you've said, because we know that two contrasting countries, just to take them, for example, Singapore and Taiwan, have different systems of government, but have actually both responded pretty well. We also know that there are dictatorial regimes like that that in Iran, which has handled this pretty badly. And consensus-based regimes or governments, for example, in Germany, uh, which has handled it quite well. The trouble is for the democracy, autocracy axis that you raise, it comes down to China and America because any amount of talk about Singapore isn't going to substitute for China and any amount of talk about Taiwan's success is not going to substitute for America. And here, we obviously face the very real prospect that the full figures won't come out from China, but also that whatever those figures are, the US experience of this, the US treatment of this, the way in which the United States as an entity has dealt with this, threatens to cast a very big cloud over state capacity in democratic societies, or put another way, the way in which democratic government undermines state capacity. And obviously, you especially, but me to some extent, we would talk about the fragmentation of the US system, we'd talk about the many layers of the US system. But I think the threat that the US situation becomes even more terrifying over the next few months. The first casualty of that is obviously those of us who live in America. But the longer term casualty, I think, could be twofold. One, obviously, America's global reputation and power. I saw a reference in something today about how long until China launches its own version of the Marshall Plan. I'm sure they're thinking about it. But the second aspect of it is obviously the one that you draw attention to, which is if the wrong lessons are drawn about the real explanation for what threatens to be not just the highest global death toll, but also a disproportionate one given the population and wealth of the country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So how can we start to explain just how badly the United States seems to be doing, at least in this first phase of a pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of obvious explanation to do with Donald Trump, to do with a weakening of funding for some of those key institutions like the CDC, the deep polarization, the society, the existence of echo chambers like Fox News. I and mean, we can all sort of make a quick list of the factors. But, you know, it has at least sharpened my awareness of those factors, all of which I would have happily reeled off three months ago. But I still find it difficult to comprehend how the most powerful democracy in the world, the richest democracy in the world, one that, according to experts, was supposed to be the one best equipped to deal with a public health emergency, has been shown up to be so much less effective 
than countries ranging from Germany to Singapore to South Korea? Well, the first thing I would say is that when you're in the middle of a thunderstorm, that's not the right time to be discussing why it's raining. And so the first rite of history, the first um, effort at history can't be done. Uh, the first phase of the argument, it's very hard to do it when the priority absolutely has to be manning the barricades, or maybe that's not the right metaphor. The first priority has to be to... Now, now you're back to the war metaphors. Yes, exactly. It's not a good one to batten down the hatches and to try to save as much life as possible and prepare for a gradual opening as possible. Because, of course, until there's a vaccine that is universally available across the country, the US will not return to anything like normal. But when you ask how is it explicable that such a mess could have been made of it, I wonder if it's that difficult. If there is denialism from the top, which there was in China at the beginning and there has been in the US from the beginning surely you end up in a situation where people, for perfectly understandable reasons, do the wrong thing. I mean, how many people left Wuhan on flights despite the virus being pretty well rooted because the government was not telling them that there was a problem? And how many people are on beaches in Florida in early March or at the Cheltenham Racing Festival in the UK on, I think, the 14th of March? Or maybe I've got that wrong, maybe in the first week of March. We know that the rot starts from the top and leadership is about rallying common action. And when the opposite happens, when leaders say, no, there's nothing to worry about, then surely it's understandable what happens. The Cassandras who are saying, woe betide us, watch out, they're not going to be listened to because it's much easier not to. I agree that the most important thing at the moment is still to think about how we can ensure that the number of casualties from this disease is going to stay as low as possible. And I get very impatient with people who immediately jump to, you know, what does this mean for Trump's re-election and questions like that. But I suppose there is an important question to be asked because we will face future crises of some sort. You know, you can have a minimalist interpretation of the failures in the early phase of the fight against corona or a maximalist one. And the minimalist one says roughly, look, this is a crisis that we haven't experienced in similar nature at least in a little over 100 years since the Spanish influenza. We've had all these experiences of pandemics that seem to be going global and we managed to contain them. And so leaders just weren't prepared because there was too much complacency. And so they didn't take the right steps in January and early February. And we've paid very, very dearly for those mistakes. But it doesn't actually say anything uh, particularly deep about the rot of democratic societies, about the rot of globalization, about the rot of the liberal international order. Now, the maximalist interpretation is to say, no, the problem is precisely that the link of trust between governments and populations has been broken to such an extent. The rot is precisely that we don't have a class of leaders that we need. The rot is precisely that we have underfunded public institutions and public health and international organizations and so on and so forth. So where on this scale do you fall? Or do you, do you think that's just not a helpful question to ask? Well, I'm not sure if I fully grasped the question. I think there are two dimensions to it, aren't there? One is bureaucratic preparedness. And I'd use bureaucratic in a very neutral way. Remember, George Bush came back from his summer holiday in 2005, I read, he having read a book on the 1918 pandemic, and went into overdrive to prepare for a pandemic. And that is about the stocking of uh, national supplies. It's about the way in which systems are running. You know, are you running your ICU system at 90% capacity or have you built in the 
cushion or the comfort for an explosion of cases. There's a whole range of technocratic measures where there's no doubt that either for reasons of lack of belief in state capacity on the part of those who are governing, which I think has been pretty striking in the US case, or because the way the hospital system works as a series of individual entities, often either profit-making or non-profit-making entities on the hospital level, you're driven by the definition of your purpose to run on a very tight scale. You can understand how for those different technocratic, bureaucratic reasons, the systems can't cope. Now, the second part of the equation depends on the fact that these health systems are never on their own enough. However many ventilators you've got, unless you're able to mobilise public action on the basis of the social trust that you describe, then your health system is going to be overwhelmed. And I see this as two separate forces, really. One is, if you like, the assault on the regulatory state would be the first half. The second half is a very short-sighted definition of political interest. And it seems to me that it's those two forces that have come together, mediated by this phenomenon of a virus that is easily transmitted and is virulent, which is unknown. I mean, remember, we in the International Rescue Committee, we cut our teeth in some ways for this kind of episode in Ebola, which was very virulent, but very hard to catch. This disease is different. And so I'm not sure if I've completely got the spectrum that you were talking about. You were talking about a single scale. So I'm not sure where I put myself on that. Well, let me sharpen the question, which is to say that, you know, a lot of people at the moment, if you read the press and so on, are saying, look, this proves that globalization was a mistake, or this proves that capitalism is rotten. And so therefore, the only way to live up to the political lessons of the coronavirus pandemic, the only way of making sure that similar crises won't happen in the future, is to radically change or abolish capitalism and globalization. I take it that you don't agree with that. First of all, let's distinguish globalization and global interconnectedness or global integration. On the one hand, capitalism, on the other, they're related, but they're not the same. And I think it's important to distinguish them. Let's take the first part of your question. Is this crisis the result of too much interconnectedness or too little? I would say the fact that there's a crisis is much more driven by domestic political decisions than by international measures of connectedness. If you want to know why more people are dying in one part of the world than the other, it's not because they're more or less linked to the global economy. It's because of domestic decisions that have been made. And I would argue that the real way to frame your question is whether or not a higher degree of global coordination and executive decision-making, governing decision-making, would make the problem worse or better I would argue it could make it better. Now, the reason I say could is that on its own, having stronger global institutions, a stronger WHO, a stronger G20, a stronger UN set of institutions, the reason I say it could make the difference is that on its own it doesn't. It only makes a difference if it's allied to at least one other factor. And that factor is the degree to which you're willing to combine an embrace of global interconnectedness with a determination to fight global inequality. And it seems to me that the dimension of global connection is intimately related to the question of global inequality. 
because the truth about this disease is that both at national and international level, it's the holes in the safety net that are threatening us all. And so to your question about capitalism, I would say, I would argue that the degree of inequality that's associated with the current round of global integration is too big for its own good. It helps explain some of the instability and some of the insecurity that exists. And so I think the needle that has to be threaded is to argue that the purpose of greater international coordination cooperation is precisely to tackle the inequalities that currently exist, because unless we do so, it will become more unstable and more threatening to more people. So this has set up many things to talk about for the next 10 minutes or so. So let me go sort of step by step. So first, we were talking about globalization and global interconnectedness. And I think that there are sort of two questions here. One is national versus international governance. What kind of roles should those international institutions like the WHO have? And then the second one, which we'll come to, is about sort of the extent of international trade. So let's start with those international organizations. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that in many ways this shows that we haven't had enough international coordination, that uh, we haven't had effective enough institutions at the global level to warn about this rising pandemic, to push China on giving more information to other countries early on about what's happening. But of course, it has also revealed just to what extent some of those institutions are captured. Part of the problem maybe with the WHO doesn't have the necessary funding and doesn't have the necessary experts and doesn't have enough respect from nation states. But part of the problem also, frankly, seems to be that it's not the most effective leader, that he is quite beholden to many of the member states, including China, and that therefore he hasn't been able to play the role and his institution hasn't been able to play the role that it should have done. So I'm convinced that this shows the need for effective international governance, but I also worry that it shows just how hard it will be to put effective international governance into place. Well, I completely agree with that. I mean, you just look at the situation of the European Union at the moment and you see that point absolutely. The EU has never had a serious responsibility for public health. So the EU has not been able to mobilize itself effectively around a range of the health aspects of this, but its divisions have hindered so far at the time of speaking its economic response too. So I completely understand your fear about this. A lot of international institutions, including the UN ones, but not only the UN ones, reflect failings of bureaucracy, but they also reflect the failings of their and the weaknesses of their own member states. And I am completely aware of that, and I concur strongly with what you said. But I guess the, the question then is what your response would be to somebody who says, look, I agree that it would be wonderful to have a set of effective international institutions, and it, at, at all realistic that we will get there. Then I would say, you know, the answer to this is not more national government, it's more international government, and let's improve the WHO and put more money into it and so on. But I don't believe that that's going to happen. And so instead of trying to pursue this dream that we all know is unrealistic, I conclude from this crisis, this critic says, that we should give up on that level and make sure that we can protect ourselves at the national level. My response to the critic would be, of course, we should maximize the effectiveness of pandemic preparation and a range of other issues at national level. But we don't want to live in a world of what Yuval Harari calls a network of fortresses, quote unquote. And that's why to limit yourself to saying, well, we're going to produce as many masks as possible 
in our own country. We're going to produce as many ventilators as possible in our own country is a vision of the future that is far more limited than the lives we've learned to lead and I think is insufficient for a world that has more resources to do more good and is more connected than any time ever. So let's get to the second aspect of globalization, which is essentially about trade and cross-border movement of goods and people. Now, there's one thing that confounds me, that puzzles me about the people who are essentially advocating the series of world fortresses, which is that when you look at history, where you obviously had a lot less global interconnection, infectious diseases spread to virtually all corners of the world as well. The bubonic plague took a lot longer to move from place to place, but move it did. And what we're seeing right now, as you were pointing out earlier, is that uh, a lot of the places that are less integrated into the global economy, that are a little bit more remote, are seeing the rise of this disease two, three, four weeks later than in some of those global hubs and some of those places that are, uh, you know, right by the big American Airlines hub or the big Alitalia hub. But it is now uh, arriving in those places too. And so the idea that completely destroying uh, global interconnectedness could have saved us from this uh, seems unrealistic. At the same time, I can see the pull of the argument that relying on international trade for goods that you might desperately need in order to protect the lives of your own citizens uh, may be misguided if we're learning from this crisis that every nation state immediately bans the export of those goods and then tries desperately to outbid each other for those few supplies that exist. So it seems to me that there's three different positions in this space. One is to say, this proves that global trade in general has been bad all along and we should reduce global trade altogether for all kinds of goods. The second is to say, look, it's perfectly fine to continue having a global trade and all of the many non-essential goods that make our economy work. And, you know, we should continue to press full speed ahead of globalization on those. But we should actually ensure that we can produce things like ventilators and perhaps food, things that really are necessary for the survival of our own citizens at the national level to prepare for the next crisis. And the third, which sounds to me like the position you were just taking, is to say, no, 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 both of those positions are wrong. We should actually just persist with uh, as much trade and perhaps more trade across borders than we've had and uh, trying to protect certain industries out of national interest is a mistake. Which of these three positions do you take and what do you say to the people who take a bigger lesson about the failings of globalization from this? Well, I didn't hear myself articulate the third position. I think that what I said was that we need to act both at the national and at the international level. It must be a fundamental responsibility of government that the protection of its own citizens involves a range of factors, including the ability to, let's say, procure, to bring to place the right kind of health equipment in this case, but it might be other kind of equipment in another case, to protect its citizens. And I think we will see, understandably, more pressure for governments to be able to guarantee surge supplies of a whole range of goods. And that guarantee might come in some cultures and some political circumstances from domestic production, or it might come from production from very close allies who are seen to be reliable and long-term committed. That seems to me to be a matter of political choice. I don't think it is a sustainable position, if I understood the third position, which is to just say, 
well, we believe in the global division of labor and we trust that that will shake out in the right way when the time comes. That doesn't seem to me to be fulfilling its the necessary function of government. And so while I don't think it makes sense as a global policy recipe to say every government needs to make sure that within its own hands it has the production capacity for all manner of goods, I do think that there will be increased pressure for governments to be able to say, yes, here's our supply chain, and this is why we think it's strong, and this is why we've addressed its weakest links, and this is why we're confident that when the time comes, it will come good. So sorry for misattributing your position. It sounds like your position is closer to the second of those three categories. What about the first one, Phil? Why do you think that people who say, oh, well, this just shows that the whole direction in which the global economy has been going, the extent of interconnectedness as a whole is wrong? What would you say to a critic who tries to press that point? A critic who pressed that would need to be able to show that no countries had been able to sustain the health of their population and then attribute it to global trade. Whereas if you think about some of the countries you've mentioned, you mentioned Germany, you mentioned Singapore, those are countries that are very open to the world. They're also countries which have high state capacity internally as well as high levels of social trust. And so my point would be that the integration of countries into the global economy has been shown not to be a blocker or a barrier on effective protection of their own citizens, but that it has to be organized in a very productive and efficient way. So that perhaps brings us to the point you were raising about equality, that we should keep global connectedness, that we should keep international organizations and institutions, but we have to make sure that that system facilitates more equality than it has in the last decades. Um, What would that look like? Well, first of all, this is raw for me. I mean, I have the privilege of heading an organization that has 30,000 staff, about 14,000 employees, 16,000, 17,000 auxiliary workers in 35 countries around the world that are engaged in humanitarian emergency. So I'm engaged with countries like South Sudan, where there's four ventilators for the whole country. I am talking to colleagues in Sierra Leone, where there's one ventilator in the whole country. I'm talking to colleagues where more than half of the population don't have access to running water in their own home. Three billion people around the world don't have access to running water in their own home. And these, what I described earlier as holes in the global safety net, that's a very uh, sort of benign way of describing it. These trapdoors that people face with very little safety net, they make for a very dangerous picture. I mean, the danger is of real carnage in the places that we work. So the question that you ask is a very is a very raw one because it raises questions about our own staff and it raises questions about the people that we're serving. Now, you then confront the context that actually the inequality as measured across the globe by incomes from the richest person in the world to the poorest person in the world, that has actually narrowed. But it hasn't narrowed in such a way as to take on the most extreme levels of absolute poverty. And if anything, the drive against extreme poverty has stalled. We know that there are rising numbers of people in extreme poverty in fragile and conflict states. uh, And the economic consequences of the virus will contribute to significant deterioration of income in uh, emerging economies. We know that. So when you say to me, what does it look like? I would say it has to look like serious discussion about what a floor level of 
income is around the world, what a floor level of healthcare is around the world, what a floor level of protection is, what a floor level of education is. And one of my fears that I have been expressing for the last five years since the publication of the UN Sustainable Development Goals is precisely that they did not have floor targets. They had targets for eradication of poverty and lack of healthcare and um, lack of protection for women and girls. They didn't have floor targets. So the danger is that those who are most exposed get forgotten. And that is what is what's frankly happened in the last three or four years. The bottom 10% has got further away from the next decile up. And that, I think, is costing us dear. If we did take those floor targets very seriously, what would that imply for the kinds of policies that uh, we should implement or the kind of institutional reforms that we need to push for? Well, let me give you an example. Less than 3% of the global humanitarian budget goes on education. So who can be surprised that three quarters of refugee children are not in secondary school? Who can be surprised that half of all refugee children are not in primary school? Who can be surprised that early childhood development interventions, which are the most we know have some of the greatest return, um, constitute less than 0.2% of the global humanitarian budget. So we know that taking seriously just that example means being serious about funding. It means being serious about systems because a lot of the schooling systems can't cope and don't reach the people in areas beyond the scope of a functioning state. It also means taking seriously issues of conflict which are magnifying the vulnerability of the populations that we're dealing with. We're living through a time when the UN Secretary General's call for a global ceasefire seems remarkable because it's been so off the agenda for so long. And so I think there's a real premium on saying within some key elements of the global social safety net, we need a radically different approach. Because at the moment, what is considered to be basic necessities versus, on the other hand, what is considered to be a luxury, and in this context, education is considered to be a luxury, we're a million miles from the kind of direction and intervention that we need. What about direct steps? So you obviously lead a very important big organization that tries to safeguard the well-being of refugees around the world. You know, what can we do in order to help refugees who are living in urban centers around the world or who are living in refugee camps to weather this disease? And what can we do to help countries you mentioned, like Sierra Leone or South Sudan? I mean... That's a relatively straightforward question to answer. That's sad, in some ways saddeningly straightforward and in other ways inspiringly straightforward or frustratingly straightforward, um, but also inspiringly straightforward. First of all, the International Rescue Committee works for all those people whose lives are shattered by conflict or persecution. So it, yes, it's refugees, but it's also the internally displaced. In, in Syria, uh, we're in northwest Syria and northeast Syria with 800 staff. There you have the internally displaced. They're not yet refugees. Now, what are these populations? And, and by the way, there's about 70 million people displaced by war and conflict around the world, 240 million people in humanitarian distress of various kinds. What do these people need in respect of COVID? One, they need the basic preventative measures to be taken at the time of speaking and when this broadcast goes out. This will be a time when the pandemic hasn't hit with full force in the communities where we work and where there is still time for basic handwashing facilities, for basic fever testing, basic triaging of people, isolation places where people can achieve some measure of separation and therefore protection. So one, prevention. Two, when the disease hits, we're not going to be able, let's be honest, Yasha, we're not going to get 40,000 ventilators that are needed for New York into South Sudan. They're not going to get it. 
but there are shorter ventilators, there is the protection of health staff, and then their ability to dispense basic help in a primary care system or lack of system that is vital. And so the response to the disease has to do the job of healthcare around the world, which is to prevent fatalities and to sustain levels of staff safety, because without the staff, you can't do anything. There are two other things that are absolutely essential. One is to recognize that half of the crisis is a crisis of healthcare. The other half of the crisis is the wider economic and social impact of the global economic meltdown that coronavirus is triggering and what that could mean for some of the poorest communities in the world. In other words, the knock-on effects from the virus that aren't directly related to those who catch the disease could nonetheless be very significant. And the figures showing the quantum difference between the amount of economic response in poor countries compared to rich countries tells you some indication of the danger. I think the figure I saw was that $150 per African is being spent on economic response so far, $6,000 per American or per European. And the fourth and final part of the equation, the basic equation, is about the vaccine. Because when the vaccine comes, we know who's going to be at the front of the queue, at the line, and we can imagine who's going to be at the back of the line. And if the vaccine is not available to swathes of humanity that currently don't have hand-washing facilities, then they're going to be living with this disease, not for the 12, 15, 18 months that is sending a shudder through Western advanced industrialist societies, but they're going to be living with it for three, four, five years or longer. What are the steps that would need to be taken and are there any steps that listeners to this podcast can take in order to make sure that some of those basic hand-washing facilities are put in place in a rapid way or in order to make sure that there is a global effort to ensure that people who are living in the poorest communities uh, get access to this vaccine in a much more timely way than the horrifying three, four, five years that you're raising as a possibility? Obviously, I'm biased. I'm running a, an NGO, a non-governmental organization. I want every listener to this podcast to go and visit rescue.org. I want them to get their 10 best friends to visit rescue.org. I want them to learn about what our staff members are doing around the world. I want them to donate to us to their financial capacity to help us do that. As well as making that pitch, I, I do want to speak as someone who now works in the NGO sector And has always, my first job actually was in an NGO, um, too long ago for me to want to remind everyone. But I am a great believer that if you want big change around the world, you do need government leadership, you do need business and NGO innovation, and you need mass mobilization. And the problem at the moment is that government leadership is missing. So that's where the NGO innovation becomes absolutely key. And so it's not just the International Rescue Committee that has boots on the ground. It is other NGOs as well. And I think we are going to have to have a model of social and economic response to this crisis that recognizes, that doesn't just say what a pity it is that government isn't there, doesn't just call for the G20 to be summoned from its slumber, but actually to recognize that there's a need for intermediary organizations, businesses, NGOs to step up, because there's going to be no return to anything approaching normality unless we can address this disease in more parts of the world than are covered by the 20 richest countries in the world. This needs something far bigger and far broader. Just to close out our conversation, David, you know, this is a very grim moment. It's grim because a lot of people around the world are needlessly dying. And it's grim because we're all sort of watching it helplessly from our homes, having had our lives completely disrupted. So let me try and be optimistic, which is not always my natural groove. 
and dream for a moment of what historians might say in the future if we get everything right. What has to happen now? What are the positive developments that might come from this uh, terrible suffering if we get everything right? Well, that is a great multi-trillion dollar question. History teaches two simple things, doesn't it? Simple to say anyway, very hard to do. One, you've got to get the diagnosis right. And two, you've got to get the prescription right. The diagnosis takes real fidelity to, to facts and to a method that really speaks truth to power about how this crisis has become so large and so dangerous. And that's where I think the beginning of our conversation about the extent to which this is a crisis that has obviously spread around the world, but has been magnified by domestic failure is very, very important. That the first argument to win is that the scale of the suffering has been much greater than it needed to be. So there's a diagnostic task that I think is essential if we're to find any silver lining in this. The prescription has to be inspired in the sense of bringing new and radical ideas to the surface. We've seen how economic orthodoxy has been dumped in the wake of the crisis. I mean, remember, in, in my own country, in the country of which I'm a citizen, a conservative government is offering to pay 80% of the wages of the workers of small businesses. I mean, that is dumping of orthodoxy on a monumental scale. We need a similar dumping of orthodoxies when it comes to thinking about, quote-unquote, intractable global problems. We need the equivalent of the beverage report for a global welfare state. We need the equivalent of Bretton Woods for the way in which emerging and developing economies can pull out of this crisis and its after effects. We need the equivalent of the true peacemakers who have won their Nobel Prizes for good reason over the last 60 years to bring to bear on the allegedly impossible diplomatic and political fissures that have held the world back. And that's where you need inspiration to be joined with agency. And that's what I think we've all got to argue for. We should do it in a way that isn't blind to the dystopian consequences that could emerge from this crisis. Dystopian in the sense of being the network of fortresses that takes down much of what has driven progress, that is anti-democratic, that is xenophobic, and doesn't put in its place of a dystopia some kind of utopia, but does actually make the practical radicalism that is so important to human progress. As I said, easy, easier said than done. David Miliband, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.